As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Ogumbiyi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. After falling into disrepair, Singapore's historic, age-defining Golden Mile Complex has been closed down for good. Well, most of it anyway. Thanks to conservation advocates, all is not yet lost. And a bit of foul trickery. Our correspondent recommends the books to read on history's most devious deceptions, from Hitler's diaries to Instagram scams. But first... Not so long ago... We used to accept heavy coins weighing down our pockets and purses as just a fact of life. The invention of debit cards and credit cards revolutionised the way we paid for things. But cash still held on as a primary means of payment. The latest innovation in payment, though, is once and for all threatening to end the reign of paper and coin. Digitization has completely changed the way that people make payments, so cash is no longer still king. Arjun Romani is The Economist's global business and economics correspondent. Cash usage has fallen by around 25 percentage points across the world's major economies in the past decade, which is really remarkable. So then how are people buying stuff? What's replacing cash? Yeah, it really depends where you are in the world. So when you think of digital finance, a few things might come to mind, you know, cryptocurrencies, central bank digital currencies. But what's really reducing cash usage is things that are more familiar. Credit card penetration has increased all around the world. Fintech apps of like PayPal or Venmo, they're equivalents to those in other parts of the world that have grown quite a bit. And basically smartphones have spread so much and everyone has an internet connection now. And so that's what's letting people pay digitally. And so tell us more about how these different systems work in different countries and contexts. There's a variety of different systems depending on where you are in the world. So if you start with the U.S. or Europe, it's primarily credit cards or debit cards that are connecting different people's bank accounts. And that's been pretty persistent for several decades now. But if you look at emerging economies, that's where things have changed much faster. So I think the place to start really is actually in Kenya, where in 2007, M-Pesa was launched, and you can send money using text messages. And so what that really showed is with mobile phones, which had become ubiquitous across the world, you could give people access to digital payments, even if they didn't necessarily have assets or credit history. And the place where that's really taken off in the past decade has been China. So basically, if you go to a market in China, you'll see QR codes everywhere. You just scan them with your phone and you can pay. I went to India, and they basically adapted that model to their local conditions. So they've created a system that's really interesting called the Unified Payment Interface, or UPI. And basically, it's a state-led system. So of all these systems, India's is really what's caught my attention. And tell me why. What about India's system has really caught your eye? So first off, it's just had remarkable growth in its 
short existence. Last year, it processed over a trillion dollars in transactions. That's equivalent to a third of India's GDP. But what's really interesting is the differences between its approach and other systems like China's Alipay or M-Pesa in Kenya, which is that UPI is open. If I use Google Pay and you use WhatsApp Pay, for example, I can still send money to you. It'll go from my bank account to your bank account, even if we're using different fintech wallets. Uh, but, but more for financial inclusion. Yeah. So a big motivation for creating UPI this way was so it would be inclusive. So I spoke with Raghuram Rajan, a former Reserve Bank of India governor, about this. It was an attempt to get people to be able to access their bank accounts without having to walk, you know, if you're on top of a hill, 10 miles down to the valley to get to the ATM, Mm. take out money and then walk 10 miles back up. That's a half a day. Uh, that's, That's not what what you want. And it was to spread the ability to use electronic money beyond the ATM, yeah. uh, beyond the uh, credit card, which many of these people didn't have access yeah. to. Uh, and The reason why digital payments are quite a game changer for emerging markets is in large part because they produce so much data. You get data on your purchasing habits, on businesses' revenues, and that allows you know these different fintech firms and banks to offer other financial services that you otherwise would not be able to offer. So I think this could potentially supercharge development for a lot of these countries, and other countries are adopting India's model here. So if you look at Brazil, they've launched a system called PIX in 2020, which facilitates bank-to-bank payments directly from one account to another, and it's taken off in just a few years and now accounts for about 30% of Brazil's electronic payments, which is the largest of any method. Okay, this is really interesting. So you're effectively saying that the developing world is following this digital first idea. But then earlier you mentioned that in the West, it's the bank card system that's still dominant. What explains this split? So in one sense, the two systems aren't actually all that different, right? You're still paying digitally, even if you're using a credit card in the US with Apple Pay, for example. So I think the story is incumbent banks have basically adopted new tech faster than startups could grow and scale. I think perhaps the most nuanced reason is that the credit cards, if you're in the West, they give you these rewards points. And that's what really keeps consumers to stick with them rather than trying something different. And once you're locked into you know, a given reward system, you probably don't want to switch. And so I think that's a big reason why the credit cards have had a lot of staying power. And... There was a lot of talk about crypto being a big disruptor in the digital payment space. I mean, you've written about crypto quite a bit yourself. How's that going? To be honest, it's not really lived up to expectations, at least not so far. If you just look at the overall market value of crypto, it was around $250 billion before the pandemic. It ballooned to around $3 trillion in total market cap by late 2021. So this is the height of the boom during COVID. But since then, it's tanked. So now it's sitting around $1.2, $1.3 And, you know, as that crash has happened, public trust in crypto has tanked. A string of high-profile scams and crashes, most notably the downfall of FTX. But I also don't think that crypto is dead, right? It's still worth $1.2 trillion. So I spoke with Alex Chahade, who leads Binance's operations in Dubai, the world's largest crypto exchange, and here's what he said. Here, the government is measured, well thought out, and they, they, they plan for the future. Yeah. So what they've done here is they've, they've made a concerted push to move away from hydrocarbons, and so they're embracing Web3, and within Web3, digital assets are a cornerstone of that. It allows you to transact in the metaverse, allows you to make payments, it allows you to monetize things, digitalize assets, digitalize art. 
And so because they've said, right, we're going to set up a, a specific regulator in Dubai, so there's a real top-down push yeah. for, for crypto adoption um, and diversification for their economy. As Alex mentioned, there's a lot of concern around regulation of this industry and what it would take to create more confidence. So basically what crypto firms want right now is they want regulators to give them certainty. They want to be sure about their status, what they're allowed to do, what they are not allowed to do. But a lot of regulators aren't really willing to play the same way Dubai has. Crypto has most uses when the alternatives to it are the worst. But the fact that all these other systems, UPI in India or Alipay in China, the card networks in the West are constantly improving their technology means the benefits to using crypto are going down, which is why I think the dominant use cases at the moment have primarily been in countries with poor financial systems that have hyperinflation, such as Argentina and so forth. So for the better part of the last century, the US dollar has been the centerpiece of the global financial system. But if much of the world is moving towards a cashless system, are we just unseating cash here or are we also potentially unseating the dollar? So I think the dollar probably is safe for the short term. There are a lot of reasons why people use the dollar independent of digital payments, right? So you need a country with a strong rule of law that's going to protect your investments. You need what's called an open capital account for your currency to be dominant. So that means if you're investing in the country, you're able to take your money out. But at the same time, I think it's true that digital payments and all these new payment rails we've talked about could make it easier for countries to transact outside the dollar when they want to. So India's UPI, for example, they've built payment bridges with other countries. So with Singapore, they've linked their fast payment systems. So you, now you can transact directly between India and Singapore using the same payment rails that you use inside the country. And now India is actually in talks with 30 other countries to help them adopt the UPI model. And so that creates a system outside the kind of Western-dominated financial system. And if you look at China, they're also making similar moves. A lot of that is due to sanctions on Russia. So now Russia is actually doing a lot of their trade in Chinese currencies. The fact that all these other systems are being built that are outside the Western system means that countries, they're no longer forced to use the dollar in all cases. But of course, if you look at the data, the dollar is still at the top. And so while these other systems have been built, I don't think we're moving to a world in which another country replaces it entirely. Arjun, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Ore. And on that question of the dollar's continued dominance, you can hear much more from Arjun and our colleagues on the current edition of Money Talks, our sister show on business and finance. It's available wherever your favourite podcasts are minted. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist. So, uh, yeah, for, for my group, I think we are all on time and here, so we can get started. Uh, a few months ago, I went on a tour of a famous and unusual building here in Singapore, where I live. Alizé Jean-Baptiste is the Asia producer for The Economist. 
bump it up to level 13 first. Uh, and don't worry, I will not make you walk up these many flights of floating staircases. We all use them. The Golden Mile Complex is iconic. It was designed to be a vertical city, so 16 stories of spaces to work, live, eat, shop, and much more. That's what's known as a mixed-use development, and Singapore didn't really have anything like this before the Golden Mile was built. It looks pretty otherworldly. Imagine you've taken the back of an old-fashioned typewriter and you're looking at the sloping rows of keys from behind. It's also famous for having been a hub for the Thai community in Singapore. But really, it's its vibrant nightlife that's made it a favorite destination for young Singaporeans. Thai-themed nightclubs are a big favorite. There's also karaoke bars, or KTVs, as they're known. They're the sort of places where patrons tend to have a few too many and belt out Chinese songs. Always off-key. But now this historic building is closing down. Tell me more about the Golden Mile Complex. Why is it so iconic? Well, it doesn't look like the rest of the city, which can feel a little bit too sleek with its steel and glass tall buildings everywhere. The Golden Mile Complex was built in 1973, a couple of years after Singapore became independent. At the time, the city was searching for its identity, and Golden Mile Complex really captured the essence of that era of exploration and experimentation. It's heavily inspired by brutalist architecture, so think exposed concrete, sharp geometric forms, and a strong focus on functionality. The team that worked on it adapted the style to Singapore's tropical climate. So large terraces for each flat, big open-air spaces, and a communal pool. I actually met Taking Soon, one of the three architects who designed the building. Yeah, right. I wasn't sure if I... Uh, you're, you're the person I'm... We chatted at a Thai restaurant on the ground floor of the complex. I'm a retired architect. I used to be president of the Singapore Institute of Architects. And I got this gold medal for being a good architect. <laughs> a good architect is quite the understatement. Tae Kang Soon and his former colleagues are known as the pioneers of Singaporean modern architecture. I, I brought this drawing to show you because I was 24 years old when I made this drawing. This drawing shows the uh, sloping canted building uh, ho hovering over a public space, right? And um, this was 1965. Uh, it was at the request of the Asia magazine based in Hong Kong at that time um, who wanted to know what some of us in Singapore thought about the future of Asian cities. So, we, so I made this drawing to show what I had in mind and that is a high density mixed development uh, with apartments on the top, offices, shops workplaces below, restaurants and so on. So 10 years later, this was actually built, right? As the Golden Mile. As this is it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so, so we have this strange uh, situation between young people thinking about the future and um, the economic circumstances of rapid economic growth and rapid urbanization 
uh, made it possible to actually implement those ideas. Those were the pioneering days, you see. People were, were not afraid to try new things. Perhaps a sign that those pioneering days are long gone is the fact that, as I said, the Golden Mall closed its doors this month. But if it's such an important landmark, why has it shut down? Well, some say it's because the building fell into disrepair, and I witnessed it myself when I last went there. There was mold on the ceilings, crumbling walls, peeling paint everywhere. And Singapore has always been cramped for space. There's a big pressure to utilize the land as best as possible. So it's hard to justify maintaining an old crumbling building where there could just be hundreds of flats. The Golden Mile Complex was sold to developers last May for 700 million Singaporean dollars. That's about 520 million US dollars. But not before it gained conservation status, meaning its iconic exterior has to be preserved. And what exactly does that mean? So that means its inside will be completely demolished and the developers will do with it as they see fit. But its outside will be preserved and maintained. The Urban Redevelopment Authority, or URA, had never given this status to a building like Golden Mall before. Until recently, Singapore had really focused its conservation efforts on colonial-era buildings. So think colorful shop houses, big state-owned buildings, the kinds of places that have either commercial value or that are just really touristy. I think one of the kind of turning points in the national conversation about conservation was when the National Library was demolished. Karen Tan of Dokomomo Singapore is on the front lines of conservation efforts in the city. For the first time, you know, there was actually quite a market public outcry. Um, it was the first time where the public started saying something, writing to the press, for example, you know, expressing their attachment to that building and, you know, wanting it to be conserved. It wasn't in the end, but I think looking back, that was a turning point for us. Those who loved the Golden Mao, like Karen, wanted to make sure the building would have a different fate. And they won. But what about the people who lived in the building? So the original inhabitants of the Golden Mall have been displaced and scattered around the city. On the tour I took before the building closed, I met Rush, a musician who grew up in the Golden Mall. I I am a resident of Golden Mall Complex. My house is Unit 13-48. Been living here my whole life, never moved out once. (laughs) Rush also ran a business in the building. So did his mother and brother. I asked him how he felt about leaving his home. So it was like a win, half win, half lose kind of thing. I was really glad that URA stepped out and Dokomomo really uh, went to, to petition to, to, to save the building's architecture. Uh, but the other part of me feels a really big loss because um, the architecture and building is one thing, but the people that inhabit the building inside, it really gives it the, the character, the, the golden mile complex of it, the whole essence of it. You know? At the end of the day, After the tours, exhibits, and talks wrapped up, people were crying. The room got really quiet. You could really sense the magnitude of the loss these people were experiencing. Okay, well, let's try and pivot to the positive. At least some of the building will be conserved, right? Could this then open the door for the conservation of other buildings as well? Well, hopefully. Singapore does have a lot of these post-independence, modernist buildings. Dokomomo actually compiled a list of a hundred of them. And at the moment, some have already been demolished. 
more will be demolished in the future. Karen thinks there needs to be a mindset shift for more of these buildings to be saved. There's still ways to go for people to start seeing these buildings as assets and not just, you know, liabilities. The successful sale of Golden Mile Complex will no doubt help. Right now, though, the building next door, the Golden Mile Tower, where Karen runs an independent cinema called The Projector, is up for sale. Its future is still uncertain. These buildings, they're literally ex physical expressions of the past. They're reminders of where we came from, and it's something that, you know, people of the future can look back on and, and have a sense of connectedness and, and a sense of identity. Alizé, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Ori. Humans are and have long been a credulous bunch, and we tend to believe what we read. For example, in 1844, Edgar Allan Poe published an article in the New York Sun about a man who'd flown across the Atlantic in a balloon. Astounding news! The Atlantic crossed in three days! The excitement generated by the news was enormous, and the newspaper's offices were besieged by people wanting to know more. But it turns out Poe made the whole thing up, and two days later the newspaper fessed up, or as they put it, We are inclined to believe that the intelligence is erroneous. The first crossing of the Atlantic by air wouldn't happen until 1919, some 75 years later. Bo Franklin is a senior digital editor at The Economist. We're obsessed with hoaxes and the people who perpetuate them. They make for fascinating tales, but few of us like falling for them ourselves. History is full of notorious hoaxes, many of which have formed the basis of intriguing books. Selling Hitler by Robert Harris. 40 years ago, Konrad Kuyau appeared to make the find of a century. Dozens of volumes of Adolf Hitler's diaries that had previously been unknown to historians. They were handwritten in delicate Gothic script and spanned the period from his rise to power in the 1930s almost up to his death in 1945. In the diary's entries, Hitler shares his assessment of Germany's progress in the war but he also writes about more mundane troubles, such as his bad breath and flatulence. The diaries were a sensation. The German magazine Stern bought the diaries, and a bidding war among English publications led Rupert Murdoch to fly to Switzerland to negotiate the serialization rights for one of his newspapers, The Sunday Times. The British historian Hugh Trevor Roper initially vouched for their authenticity. But on closer examination, the diaries turned out to be almost amateurishly fake. The paper and the ink had been made long after Hitler had died. Kuyao, who had stained the pages with tea to make his fabrications look old, confessed to the whole thing. He would end up serving three years in jail for his deception. This whole incident is told with biting wit in Selling Hitler by the British novelist and journalist Robert Harris. The diaries, which will soon go on display at the German National Archives, may have been deeply embarrassing for the media titans who fell for it. But the story also captivated the public. As Mr. Murdoch put it at the time, after all, we are in the entertainment business. The Coming of the Fairies by Arthur Conan Doyle. These days, we don't always trust photos. Modern techniques of image manipulation, from Photoshop to AI, 
have stopped us from believing every image we see. But in the early 20th century, seeing was believing. In 1917, two girls in Yorkshire, in northern England, borrowed a camera and went to play in the garden. When the pictures they took were developed, they showed the girls surrounded by small, spirit-like creatures with wings. The mother of one of the girls showed the images at a meeting of the Theosophical Society, a mystical movement, and word of the fairies spread. They became known as the Cottingley Fairies, after the village in which the images were taken. Photography experts found no sign of fakery, and the fairy photos found one especially big fan. Elementary, my dear Watson. This man has been dead for at least two hours. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, was a keen spiritualist. He wrote an article on the fairies, using the photos as evidence of their existence. He called the images an epoch-making event. By publicizing these photos further, he generated a new wave of excitement. He later expanded on the article in a book published in 1922, called The Coming of the Fairies. Unfortunately for him, the spirits never materialized. In 1983, the two cousins, now old ladies, admitted that they had faked the photos. The so-called Cottingley fairies floating among them were simply cardboard cutouts. I never even thought of it being a fraud. It was just Elsie and I having a bit of fun. And I can't understand it to this day why people were taken in. They wanted to be taken in. So it turns out that Arthur Conan Doyle the author of one of the most discerning characters in the Western canon had been utterly and fully duped by a pair of young girls. My Friend Anna by Rachel Deloach Williams Anna Sorokin is among the most charismatic of contemporary scammers. Miss Sorokin, who was born in Russia, created an alter ego in the form of Anna Delvey, a wealthy socialite. After moving to New York between 2013 and 2017, Anna, by playing a character, expertly defrauded the wealthy and their institutions, from banks to hotels. By convincing people that she was fabulously rich, she found it easy to get others to bankroll her lifestyle, to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Rachel Deloach Williams, who worked for Vanity Fair, was one of those who fell for Miss Delvey's tricks. She wrote about it in the magazine, and later in a book, My Friend Anna. Ms. Deloach Williams was already familiar with Ms. Delvey from her glamorous posts on Instagram and was drawn in further by her talk of family trusts and setting up charitable foundations. It was only when they went on a luxurious holiday together that the penny dropped. After living it up, Ms. Delvey took off, leaving Ms. Deloach Williams with the bill. Her misplaced trust was an expensive mistake. It cost her $62,000. Rather than succumb to bitterness, in the book, Mr. Loach Williams reflects on the ease with which anyone can use social media to create an alternative reality. Ms. Sorokin just took it further than most. She was locked up for almost four years and has since sold the rights to her story to Netflix, which became the hit show Inventing Anna. <laughs> Thank you all for being here to support the Anna Delvey Foundation. When I came up with the idea, I knew the only place to bring it was New York. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. New hoaxes are always springing up, from the big to the mundane. And when they're done right, it's easier than you might think to get duped. Read these books and you'll have a chance to, just maybe, not be so quick to fall for the next one that crosses your path. 
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really are missing out. But dive in with the deal we've got going on for our listeners. A free 30-day digital subscription. Just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer or click the link in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit Moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.